Chapter 13 of A History of Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amanda Mel, Portland, Oregon, August 25, 2020. A History of Astronomy by Walter W. Bryant. Chapter 13 The Sun, Eclipses, Parallax. It is time for us to leave the fascinating study of comets and consider the progress of solar astronomy. The sun is a body so vast that if it were in the position of the earth, it would include the moon, although the latter is nearly a quarter of a million miles from the earth. The historic problem of the sun's distance reduces to that of finding a baseline wherewith to compare it. Aristarchus chose the moon's distance but failed because it was impossible for him to determine when the moon was exactly half full. Hipparchus attempted to work from the diameter of the Earth's shadow, as shown by the progress of a lunar eclipse. His result was no better than that of Aristarchus, both being twenty times too small, and no further progress whatever was made towards the solution until after the enunciation of Kepler's laws, showing the connection between the mean distances of the several planets. It was then seen that if the distance of Mars— for instance, could be determined, that of the sun would follow. From Tycho Brahe's observations, Kepler found that the sun's distance could not be less than about three times the distance given by Ptolemy. Improvement came with the invention of the telescope, and Cassini's proposal, carried out by the Paris Academy of Sciences, was to compare the positions of Mars, as seen against the practically fixed background of stars, from distant stations in France and in Cayenne. What was strictly sought was not directly the actual distance of Mars, but the angle subtended at the distance of Mars by the Earth's radius, from which the distance of Mars could be computed. This angle, however, was too small for exact measurement with the instruments then employed. But that very fact allowed Cassini to deduce that it could not have been greater than 25 seconds of arc, so that the corresponding angle, or parallax, of the Sun could not exceed 10 seconds of arc, corresponding to a distance of more than 80 million miles, a vast improvement on the previous best result. We have already referred to the attempt of La Salle at the Cape, in conjunction with Lalande and others in Europe. The result, however, though definite and not conjectural, was practically the same. But the transit of Venus affords another plan, and as one of these was to occur in 1761 and another in 1769, Halley proposed a method to be employed, depending on the fact that the duration of the transit of Venus across the solar disk would differ at different stations. If, then, the duration could be well observed at stations differing greatly in latitude, data would be provided for the solution of the problem. It would, however, be essential that both the beginning and end of the transit should be seen at each station, and since the transits take place either in June or in December, and may last eight hours, the weather conditions would be probably bad in the far south in the first case, or in the far north in the other, so that the choice of ideal stations would be restricted. Delisle's method, to obviate this, was to observe the exact time of one contact at stations differing widely in longitude, so that, instead of two cords of the sun of different length, whose distance from each other is measured by the difference of latitude on the earth, we have a direct comparison between an arc of longitude on the Earth and the arc described by Venus in a known interval of time. This method necessitates extreme accuracy in the time determination, and in that of longitude, so that the weather conditions come in again with great effect. 
The results in 1761 and 1769 were a great advance on the previous ones, but though the latter in particular was well observed, a government expedition under Captain Cook being sent specially at the request of the Royal Society and many widely separated stations occupied by continental astronomers, the chief result was to demonstrate the great difficulty of the observation, which arises from the fact that owing to irradiation, the dark body of Venus, seen on the sun's disk, appears too small, so that it is nearly impossible to fix the time of contact. The peculiar difficulty involved is due to the gradual character of the effect, which only apparently reduces the part actually on the disk, so that the following limb of Venus appears distorted up to a certain, or rather uncertain, point, when suddenly the round disk is seen at some distance from the limb of the sun. As the next transit of Venus was only due in 1874, the requisite improvement in the accuracy of the determination had to be sought elsewhere, and the great advances in the precision of instruments enabled the sun's approximate distance to be deduced from its effect on the moon's motion. Laplace thus obtained a value practically equal to that which Encke found from a careful reconsideration of the transit of Venus observations taken in 1761 and 1769. The method is called that of the parallatic inequality of the moon, and with improved observations and tables, Hansen deduced a result in 1854 distinctly better than any previously obtained. The Verrier obtained very nearly the same result by considering the apparent inequality of the sun's motion, due to the real inequality in that of the Earth corresponding to that of the Moon, inasmuch as both Earth and Moon really revolve about their common center of gravity, though it is convenient to refer to the whole of the motion to the Moon. Another new method depended on the accurate determination of the velocity of light by actual experiment, from which the length of a chord of the Earth's orbit could be deduced, by considering the retardation of the eclipses of Jupiter's satellites which, as we have seen, had been discovered by Romer. But before we pass to more modern advances, we must first turn to other branches of solar research. Newton, and before him, Grimaldi, discovered that sunlight was split up into different colored rays when passed through a prism of glass, or any refracting substance. By varying the dispersion, Newton was unable to find any gaps in the colored band or spectrum, but in the course of time, first Wollaston and then Fraunhofer discovered that there were breaks in the continuity, which could not be if light of every degree of refrangibility, of every wavelength, were to be found there. Fraunhofer pursued the investigation with a telescope, and in 1814 mapped 576 dark lines. Space would fail us to trace the gradual emergence of the science of spectroscopy, a vast and increasing interest to the astronomer, but involving much work in the laboratory in which the chemist and the physicist claim their share. Herschel's chief contribution was the discrimination between heat rays and light rays, in which, after other physicists had found that the red end of the spectrum received more heat than the brightest portion, he made the further discovery of invisible heat rays beyond the red end, among which he found a still greater thermal effect. We shall have occasion to review some of the recent developments in a later chapter, so now we turn to another interesting page in astronomical history, connected with the sun's surface. We have seen how among the many discoveries following inevitably from the invention of the telescope, that of sunspots was made by Galileo and others, of whom, according to many authorities, Fabricius was really the earliest, though priority is also claimed for Galileo, Shiner, and Harriet. The real credit lay with the telescope, so that the question of priority is of no importance. Considering how often sunspots are visible to the naked eye, or rather without telescopic assistance, 
it would be difficult to believe that sunspots had not been seen before. And as a matter of fact, they had, centuries before, but it had never occurred to anyone that they were sunspots, and not simply bodies, such as Mercury, for instance, passing between the Earth and the Sun. But, though Shiner at first thought they might be planets revolving close to the Sun, there was soon no doubt that not only were the spots solar, but that they moved, showing that the Sun was rotating in a period of 27 to 28 days. The results were viewed as heretical, partly because the venerated Aristotle said nothing about spots in the sun, and partly because it was considered derogatory to the sun to be other than perfectly bright. But even the bigotry that denied the truth of the Copernican system could not remain proof against the plain evidence of the senses, and soon the study of sunspots was a recognized branch of astronomy. The bright spots were called faculae by Hevelius, but observation was generally confined to the dark spots. Cassini described in great detail the variations in the appearance of some spots and groups of spots. The way in which gradations of light were shown between the spots and the bright part had been noted long before, and Cassini practically described the foreshortening effect shown by the spots and penumbra when near the sun's limb. It was, however, Dr. Wilson of Glasgow, who, in 1769, studying a large naked-eye spot, Notice that the penumbra near the limb looked different on the two sides of the spot, being wider on the side towards the limb, and almost, if not quite, vanishing on the side towards the center of the sun. This could only mean, he considered, that the penumbra represented the sloping sides of a hollow in the place occupied by the spot, as if the spot were level with the surface there would be practically no relative foreshortening, and if raised the effect would be the opposite to that observed. Wilson saw that his hypothesis required to hold at both limbs, and so having seen the effect as the spot was going off the limb, he waited until it reappeared on the other side and found, as he expected, that the wide part of the penumbra was then on the opposite side, i.e. still towards the limb, while that towards the center was out of sight. It is not by any means certain that the Wilsonian theory, as it is called, is true, as the same effect might be produced in a different way, but it represents almost the only tentative advance in the subject until Herschel's time. Herschel worked and wrote much on the probable nature of the sun. To him, it was a giant planet, the primary of our system, but otherwise very like any other planet, probably inhabited, inasmuch as he saw no reason to suppose the fiery heat we experience from the solar rays to have anything like a proportionate effect on the solid body he inferred to exist beneath the shining layer which we generally see. His scheme was simple and not lacking in plausibility. The sun, like the earth, is surrounded by an atmosphere partly transparent and partly charged with gaseous clouds, the outer layer incandescent, the inner opaque, reflecting light and heat from the outer. An uprush of gaseous matter from below, through the inner envelope, will just raise a sort of blister in the outer one, a facula, technically, and if persistent, a sunspot. Any gap in the outer envelope will only cause a dusky appearance. Gaps in both occurring at the same place will cause the sun's dark body to be seen through, causing the appearance of a spot with a dusky penumbra, if the gap in the outer envelope is larger than that in the inner. Such was briefly what may be considered the first physical theory of the constitution of the sun. Herschel appealed to the fact of great cold experienced on mountaintops and high in the air as an argument that the sun's rays alone did not constitute heat in answer to objectors to his theory of habitability. His eminent sun seized upon another phenomenon first noted by Galileo, that the outbreaks of spots were almost entirely confined to two regions of the sun, 
zones of 35 degrees on each side of the solar equator, separated by an equatorial zone of 16 degrees breadth, in which, as well as in the circumpolar zones, very few have been certainly seen. He likened the equatorial zone to the zone of calms between the regions of the trade winds on the earth, and postulated some cause analogous to the circulation of air from the poles to the equator modified by rotation, which is the known cause of the terrestrial phenomena referred to. His suggestion for the purpose was a transparent atmosphere outside the luminous envelope, which by the rotation would be impelled to assume a form similar to that of the earth, flattened at the poles and bulging at the equator, and that this difference of thickness of atmosphere between poles and equator involved different rates of radiation, which would correspond to the difference of temperature on the earth and set up the circulation required. The analogy is very pretty, and the parallel between the monsoon and cyclone of our lower latitudes and the solar disturbances in his corresponding regions is striking, but it is, after all, only an ingenious hypothesis. The next advance was made by Schwabe of Dessau, who began noting the number of spots to be seen every day the sun was visible, apparently without any definite object, but was soon provided with one, for the percentages of days on which spots were visible in successive years, commencing with 1826, were 93, 99, 100, 99, 82, 48, 56, 93, 100, 100, 100, 100. From this striking series of numbers, combined with certain other more or less definite signs of progressive change which he did not fail to notice, such as the great rapidity of change halfway between the maximum and minimum, compared with the slow rate at those epochs, Schwabe felt confident that there was a true periodic variation in the phenomena. He continued his observations for 20 years longer in order to convince others, and ultimately succeeded in proving the existence of a period of about 10 years. The completion of the analysis of his results must be deferred for the present, as he continued working well into the latter half of the century. Before leaving the subject of the sun, however, we must pay some attention to the steady increase of knowledge due to the interest taken in solar eclipses. It must have been noticed many centuries before authentic records begin that there is something visible during a total eclipse, even of the longest possible duration, which prevents the darkness rivaling that of night though even in more or less authentic accounts, there is occasionally a doubt as to whether the description of a particular eclipse refers to an annular or total one. Since the moon and the sun, though apparently about equal in size, both vary their distance from the earth, it is obvious that the question of any totality of eclipse and of its duration depends on the relative distances of the sun and moon when in conjunction. If the moon is at apogee and the sun at perigee in conjunction, the moon will be relatively small and the sun large, so that the moon will not entirely eclipse the sun, but will leave a bright ring or annulus, shining as clearly as usual. If, however, the moon is at perigee and the sun at apogee, it is the moon that is relatively large, and the eclipse will be total if the moon is near enough to the node of her orbit to render an eclipse possible, since no eclipse can occur unless the moon is in or near the ecliptic. In this case, also, there is during totality a bright ring visible round the moon, but of a totally different character and called the corona. The first mention of this is made by Philostratus in his Life of Apollonius, the prodigy, which was taken to foretell the death of Domitian, being referred to the year A.D. 95. There had been historical eclipses before, mentioned by Herodotus and others, including the much-discussed Eclipse of Thales and Eclipse of Agathocles. 
It is by means of these ancient eclipses that astronomy comes to the aid of history in helping to elucidate obscure points of chronology. It is, however, to be remarked that in more than one instance this aid is only partially successful and leaves dates still uncertain, though the limits of uncertainty are narrowed. One great cause of this is the difficulty of deciding from the ancient record whether a given eclipse was or was not total, and this may very possibly be due to the brightness of the corona, though this is very inferior to that of the sun, or else it would be visible without an eclipse. Naturally enough, for many centuries such phenomena were regarded as prodigies and omens, a few scientific observations being directed towards the determination of the moon's mean motion. Solar total eclipses, moreover, are rare, and especially so at any given place, none such having been visible in London, as Halley remarked, between 1140 and 1715, and it was not until nearly the latter of these dates, in 1706, that anything like systematic physical observations of the phenomenon were recorded. From that date onwards, the corona was regularly observed, with notes as to stars and planets visible during the obscuration of the sun, and in 1733 we have the first mention of reddish spots near the moon's limb. In 1766, four extensions of the corona were remarked, giving it the familiar oblong shape. But the first occasion on which the astronomical world devoted its energies to the express purpose of making the most of the opportunity afforded was in 1842, though at the eclipse of 1733, a large number of the country clergy of Sweden responded to the suggestion of the Royal Society of that country and made careful observations, which were collated and arranged by Celsius for publication in that society's transactions. The rosy prominences were again remarked in 1842, and discussion arose as to whether they belonged to the moon or to the sun. On this occasion, moreover, a distinction was made by some observers, notably Arago of the Paris Observatory, between the bright and comparatively narrow inner corona and the fainter extensions, partly radial and partly curved, forming the outer corona. But observers in general differed as to the exact form and extent of what they saw, probably in consequence of the varying atmospheric conditions at the several stations in France, Italy, and Austria, especially as the sun's altitude varied from 12 degrees at Perpignan to more than 40 degrees at Lipesk, where Otto Struve remarked on the intense brilliancy of the corona as almost too bright for the unaided eye, while Arago at Perpignan compared it only to the light of the moon. Shadow bands were also observed at this eclipse. A French observer, happening to look at a white wall at Perpignan as the last rays of the sun were disappearing, noticed a rapid undulation of the light on the wall, like that produced by the reflection of sunlight on the ceiling from the surface of liquid in motion, and remarked the same phenomenon at the end of the eclipse. Similar notes were made by others, both there and elsewhere. The celebrated Bailey's beads, however, were not seen on that occasion. Though it was principally with the idea of confirming his previous observation made at the annular eclipse of 1836 that Bailey went to Italy in 1842. He had, in 1836, noted that when about 90% of the moon's circumference had passed in front of the sun, the remaining arc suddenly took the appearance of a string of bright beads, irregular in size and distance, with intervening dark spaces, apparently glued to the sun's limb but gradually stretching away until suddenly the dark lines disappeared, and the moon appeared well inside the limb of the sun. This part of the phenomenon is obviously similar to the appearance already referred to in regard to the transit of Venus, the beads themselves being due to the irregularities of the moon's limb. Partial confirmation had been obtained in America at the eclipse of 1838, but practically none in 1842. 
in india however in eighteen forty seven captain jacob once more obtained partial confirmation of bailey's observation the want of uniformity in the occurrence of the phenomenon is the principal stumbling-block in the way of the general acceptance of the extremely plausible explanation that the cause is irradiation by which a dark body on a bright background appears smaller and a bright body on a dark background larger than it really is shadow bands are often explained by a different optical principle that of interference by virtue of which alternate bright and dark bands are produced by admitting sunlight through a narrow slit the same being presumed to take place when the slit is personated by the narrowing portion of the uneclipsed sun in connection with the sun reference has already been made to the transit of venus but perhaps a little more attention is due to the first authentic observer of the phenomenon venus in sole visa jeremiah horrocks or horrocks transits of mercury had probably been seen before kepler's time but his rudolphine tables gave the first known prediction of transits of mercury and venus both of which he announced would cross the sun's disk in sixteen thirty one mercury on november seventh and venus on december sixth gassendi at paris observed the transit of mercury but was prevented by clouds from seeing that of venus owing to an error in kepler's tables he announced that the next transit of venus would not take place until seventeen sixty one horrocks however discovered that the true place of the planet was between those given by kepler's and landsberg's tables and that though kepler's made it pass below the sun in december sixteen thirty nine landsberg's gave a transit over the upper part of the disk he concluded therefore too late to inform astronomers generally who were relying on kepler entirely that venus would actually cross the lower part of the sun's disk and he and his friend crabtree had the great satisfaction of verifying this and horrocks himself actually made observations during the transit he was a young man of very great promise whose very early death was a grievous loss to science dying in his twenty-first year much of his writings being lost or destroyed in the civil war during which crabtree also perished there yet remains enough to secure him a high place among the successors of hipparchus his lunar theory supplies the explanation of the eviction by a libratory motion of the apsides and a variable eccentricity and was probably of great value to newton the notion of a disturbing force of the sun and what is often called hook's experiment to show how apsides move are due to horrocks who also realized the failure of a swinging body to represent the real facts inasmuch as it moves about the centre instead of the focus of the elliptical path he also worked during the last year of his life on the great inequality of jupiter and saturn and projected investigations on comets and tides and in the short time at his disposal and with his very inadequate means he made wonderful progress in the early days of the royal society when his papers were discovered and published many must have echoed the cry of dr wallace who edited the fragments had he but lived what would he not have done end of chapter thirteen recording by amanda mel portland oregon august twenty fifth twenty twenty